0: series. It's going to take a while. but so we're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew. And since we already started it at Christmas time, we're starting in chapter two. <coughs> and so the plan this morning is to give a basic introduction to the book and then we'll look at a, a, a famous passage here. And so let's read it. It's Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 15. Hear God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have not left us alone to our imaginations as to what you're like. And, and where to find your wisdom in the world. And so I pray that you would uh, lead us to the, cr- to the risen Christ, that we might give our gifts, our talent, our time, our wealth, our worship, <coughs> to this child, to this one who will become king, who is king. And so help us learn how to live in light of your wisdom in this world and send your spirit to give us the help we need. In Christ's name, amen. So the way to get started here is just to, to start with a question. Why should you trust the Gospel of Matthew as a historical, reliable resource to know who Jesus is? Okay. This is a Gospel, and it's a particular type of literature. i want to start there. And the New Testament has four of them. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these really are the, the, all, the main are the only sources we have for uh, this amount of detail for Jesus' life. I mean, you'll get snippets of non-Christian authors that mention there was a Jesus out there and he did amazing things. You can read, read an example by Josephus in your bulletin. Um, well, I can read it to you now. I mean, this is all Josephus says, that there was a man Jesus, a wise man, If one indeed if one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was the teacher of such people that they accept the truth gladly. And he won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men, the the main men among us, Pilate had him condemned to a cross, and those who had first come to love him did not cease. And so he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold all these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day, not disappeared. <laughs> Just, but that's about as long as it gets outside of the, the Bible. Right. Josephus was a Jewish Roman historian. About He wrote this around 93 AD. All right. And so I, I want to try and encourage you and build up your, your faith. that the Matthew is a reliable historical document trying to show you not only who Jesus was in real life as a person, it's a biography, but it's also a, a theological teaching tool. Right? Matthew ha- is telling you history with an agenda. He wants you to worship this child Jesus, to see him as he really is, uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one whom the scriptures are about. Right? And so to, to start out, I mean, there's arguments out there that you might have heard, put by a guy, you might have heard the name Bart Ehrman, he gets popped up every year about Christmas or Easter uh, as as a scholar, and where they will say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are not our only resources. They're not the, they're, there are other Gospels out there that would be helpful because they were circulating around the time of, of the church. Uh, you probably have heard some of them. Gospel of Thomas is the famous one, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, and I mean, pr- the Gospel of Judas, but I doubt that one took off in popularity. But the basic argument was, is that in the church, when all these things were being written, there were all these different ideas on who Jesus was. They had different ideas. Some thought Jesus was just a good teacher. Some believed he was God come in the flesh. And the church, over centuries, decided to, to, to control people, to keep, to keep them in their place. And the church conspired to accept these documents that we have, um, so that, that those in power could stay in power. And you can read it. There's a horrible article in Newsweek that was really popular a couple of years ago where they're talking about the Bible being so misunderstood, it's a sin. Bart Ehrman, would say, he's one of the guys who would, would say these things. So I just want you to hear his name. So when you hear his name and, and academic as a solid resource, he, right, don't, don't believe it. So Matthew, what he's trying to do is saying, Matthew is a different document than all these others that we are being told we should trust. Because it's a gospel, it's a historical biography. It wants you to believe that the whole Bible's about Jesus. So as you saw here, it's always about, it is written, this is to fulfill what the prophet has said. It's written to teach us Christians, the church, how to follow this Jesus once you believe in him. There's a lot in there. But when you start to compare Matthew these other Gospels, there's a lot of important details that, that I think will give you confidence that even that Matthew is a trustworthy book, because right? just when it was written compared to these other Gospels, for example, Matthew was written in the mid-60s, so Jesus died roughly 33 AD, so within a generation, there witnesses still alive when Matthew was written. Mark is probably the, the earliest, that's what I believe anyway, The fi- in the 50s would be the closest. Luke was uh, a <laughs> little bit before Matthew and John later. He, was, he was written at, John, The Gospel of John was written at the end of his life. But all four of these documents, including Matthew, were written within the lifetime of the witnesses of, of Jesus. So, for example, in Mark, when it says that the man who carried Jesus' cross up the hill, Mark says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we say, who's Rufus? <laughs> but the people then, they could go find him. They didn't give a last name. They didn't give any identification. Everyone who was there, this was somebody you could go find. Or Paul would say when in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus appeared after the resurrection and some 500 other people at one time I mean, Paul's just saying, look, these people were still alive. These, these things were not being claimed in, in a secret corner. And if you compare that to these other Gospels, like, like the Gospel of Thomas, and they, they were written 150, 160, some in the 200s, some in the 300s, well after you would be able to go verify. It was more of, let's write what we think Jesus is and let's put somebody important's name on it and let's try and get people to follow us. Or even more, you can listen, hear the differences. Here's a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. That, right, this is not truth. This is not Bible truth. I want you to be clear. Right? Women, this, this might, might offend you. <laughs> uh, where Simon Peter says, this is Jesus having a conversation. Um, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And then Jesus said, Well, look, I'm going to draw her in and make her male so that she too may become a, a living male spirit similar to you. And Jesus still talking here. says, I say to you, every woman who makes herself male will, become, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like Jesus of the Gospels? <laughs> the Jesus who first revealed himself to women after the resurrection? And see, even as you read these books, these other Gospels, and you compare them to the, the earlier ones, those who had verification, those who had acceptance among the early church, I mean, you're going to find there, there some weird ideas out there. Because the Gospel of Thomas is not a real gospel. Right. Matthew is close enough, it's a history book, it's close enough to go talk to the witnesses. A lot of people think Matthew used Mark as a resource. Again, go fight, figure out who's Rufus, go find him. It's a theological book, and this is where we're going to talk about this morning that, that Matthew, what he wants us to believe is to, to know that God has sent his Messiah, his King, and his King is Jesus, and this King is worthy of the worship of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, that he's not just for the Jews, he's for the entire world, and that the whole Bible is pointing to this moment when this Jesus would come, and that's what our passage is about. This is the beginning. Because Christmas, we talked about the genealogy, the list of names, that that it starts out that Jesus is the son of God, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And that's that's what the whole book's going to flow out of, that Jesus, the son of David, the king, is also the son of Abraham, this promised offspring who would be a blessing to the nations. He's the king who's going to rule the world and is worthy of our worships. And so let's look at Look at this famous passage about the Magi, and we'll we'll get started. All right, because this is a famous account. I know it's not Christmas. You can talk about Christmas, not in December. It's a it's pretty famous. We we three kings of Orient are. There's a song that's sung, nativity scenes. We have three kings in our nativity scene when it's up. Um, I just learned this year in parts of the world in Catalonia, Spain, they don't give presents on Christmas Day. They give them on a, on a January fifth in honor of the three kings. They don't give their list to Santa. <laughs> they, they give it to, to the three kings. Right, it's a fun tradition. But all of this makes you wonder, why did Matthew, he's the only gospel writer, why did he include this whole talk about the magi, the three kings? Because it's the only one. And if you think about what it's claiming, it's astounding. The three not three, we don't even know how many, how many there were. They, they, we say three because there were three types of gifts. It's just a guess. But these wealthy foreigners left someplace in the east, crossed, took a dangerous journey through the desert. Full, I mean, they came with expensive gifts, so they had to have protection against thieves and robbers. And they took this long journey through the desert to go worship a man from another ethnicity and claim that he is king. Right. I mean, that would be like you and me running to Saudi Arabia right now and bowing down and worship to their king. How crazy would that be? I, mean, I know people threaten to do that because of the election, but <laughs> maybe not there. Right. So this is what Matthew's saying, that the, he's starting out with this whole picture that the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the world. And look at this that the, just, the, just his birth brought people from a distance to come and worship him. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. God said this was going to happen. Isaiah 60, you can read it. Nations are going to come to your light, talking to God. Kings are going to come to the brightness of your rising. These camels, a multitude of camels will come. Those from Sheba will come, from Midian and Ephah, the other nations. And they're going to bring gold and frankincense and bring good news and praise the Lord. It's this, this picture, this is Matthew saying this is happening? Or numbers. Numbers 24:17, if you want to look it up later, there was a prediction that God's king would be associated with a star, that a star would come out of Jacob, and that the scepter, right, the kingly language, would come out of Israel. And so these magi, these, these wise men, have heard the rumors. That God has promised to send a king, and he was going to send a king through Israel. And because the Jews had been spread out through the exile, these rumors had spread out through the nations. And what gets their attention to say this has actually happened is astrology, (laughs) a star. That a bunch of wealthy pagan intellectuals, that's who the Magi were, came all this way because they saw a star astrology, I mean the thing you read in the newspaper, looking at the stars for wisdom, for guidance, to tell us how to live in this world. It's it's pretty amazing. You think about it, this was the common belief in the day, that the signs in the heavens, that what you could see in the star, they would point to big events. And so this is what astrologers were always arguing, that if they could look at the stars, they could give wisdom, they could give advice, they could tell the kings what to do, they could predict um, this is the belief that when kings were born a star would rise when kings would die a star would rise that that the heavens would say this is when the earth is about to change. And so for example this actually happened in 44 BC when Julius Caesar was after he was assassinated as his funeral as his funeral his body was being burned in the sky this massive comet coincidentally just shot across the sky and it was one of the brightest comets to ever come by earth to ever be seen, which was great for the astrology business. (laughs) And so they would say, see? The stars do tell us what's happening. Something important's happening. Look at this. And that's what God used to get the magi to come from Babylon or Persia, we don't really know what country, somewhere from the east to come and worship him, to worship Jesus. These guys were a bunch of foreign intellectuals. These were the Oxford, the the Harvard, the Princeton, the Yale, the scholars of their day. And this is, and Jesus, it's really funny. God uses astrology. And it used to be that we would make fun of that. But in our culture, astrology is everywhere. It's printed in the Boston Journal every few months. We can, it just, I just got it in my, in my email this week. The college-educated people are saying, I, I just want to have a general idea of of where I th- maybe my life is heading. So all that introduction to say, what is Matthew trying to teach us? And he's going to teach us two things. He's going to teach us about God's surprising foolishness. And he's also going to teach us about God's specific wisdom. And so you look at this. These magi, they make this long journey to Jerusalem. Look where they go. All they know is a king has come, and he's coming out of uh, out of Israel. They don't go to Bethlehem first; they go to Jerusalem, they go to the capital, where they would expect to find a king. And Herod, who's in power, Herod's a crazy guy. He's not mentally stable. He's—I mean, you're obviously ready. He's going to destroy a whole bunch of children. He's the current king of Israel, and any new king to him is just a threat. I mean, he's. He's so unstable that later he's going to kill two of his own sons because he doesn't want to share his power. And so he panics. He calls all of his advisors to say, okay, who is this king? Where is this promised king supposed to be born? And he calls the, the scribes, the the, the, studier, the people who study God's law, God's scripture, calls these people together. And everyone's rank restless. And that's what it says. The people of the city are, are freaking out. This new king, if... If Herod is upset, then we should be scared, because when Herod gets upset, people die. So they call these, the scribes and the priests, the, the liberal scholars and the conservative scholars, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that's who these people would be, the Bible academics of the day, and they've all come back with Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler that will shepherd my people Israel. And it's actually a quote from two different parts. It's Micah 5 and, and uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel as well. So what's, what's it saying? This is really interesting. If you go back to Matthew, Micah 5, turn with me in your Bibles to Micah 5. I want you to see it slightly different. This is what you're supposed to do. Get a Bible with cross-references. It'll tell you where to look. But Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is what it says in the Hebrew Bible. Feel free to use the table of contents because I know it's buried back in there. (laughs) But I want you to compare the two things. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is another name for Israel, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Did you hear the difference? You see the difference? Matthew says Bethlehem is um, not the least. It's important. It sounds like Micah's saying that Bethlehem is not important. It's insignificant. It's not even worthy to be counted in the list of, of family tribes. All right? And so here's what Matthew's trying to do it's not a contradiction, it's commentary. He's saying what Micah promised is that something important is going to come out of an insignificant place, Bethlehem. Look at how God is working. This is what God meant all along, that, what, that Bethlehem, which seems to be too small, but man, it's not important because God's king is going to be born there, that the small backwoods town is hiding a world changer. And, and even hinting, because Matthew, when he quotes these things, when the old, New Testament quotes the Old, they want you to go and read the context. Right? To, to read that this ruler, this king, is even going to be from of old, from ancient days. And so here, here's what we're seeing. What seems foolish and insignificant on the outside is actually going to be world-changing. Right? That God, in his wisdom, appears foolish to us by choosing Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the most powerful man who will ever lived, the most important, the most significant. So just think about how different this is from the, the way the world works. We saw the presidential inauguration and how much money was spent uh, to celebrate the peaceful passing of power. Helicopters, the money, there's feasts, there's parties. I mean, all this happening in the capital city where the, the very seat of power where, I mean, mean, it's what we tell ourselves. We're the the country that polices the world. We're the strongest there is. We have the most powerful military. If you want to go to where people make laws that affect nations, go to Washington, D.C. And the gospel starts out by saying, the King of kings and the Lord of lords was born in a place like Galway, Bethlehem. Because there's nothing here about Jesus' birth if you're there that's saying he's gonna be a child, he's gonna change the world. He's just an ordinary birth in an ordinary town. We know differently from the scriptures. But but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he wasn't born in the best hospital. He wasn't born uh, in the seat of power in a palace. He wasn't born in the biggest city, surrounded by people of influence. He was born in the middle of nowhere, in a stable, in a delivery room that was not clean. It probably smelled like manure. See, God's values are not like our values. That's what, we're being, that's what Matthew's starting to tell us. All right, that Jesus, by being born in Bethlehem, is saying that God's values, his wisdom, is bigger, wider, and more inclusive than ours because we would never pick a place like, like Bethlehem for a person of influence. To change the world, we want want to be in power. You see this in the passage that King Herod, if he really was threatened by Jesus, he would have gone to Bethlehem himself. He didn't really believe the scriptures. I mean, later he's going to go as he gets mad and gets worried. The scribes, they stay in Jerusalem. They don't believe something, even though they have the, the words right in front of them that God's going to do something amazing, they aren't motivated to go check out God's wisdom, because they think it's foolish. So the morning star, the king of kings, the one who holds the world together by the word of his power, was born in a small town by what the world considers ugly, foolish, uh, ignorant, unimportant. And Matthew says that's how God works. <laughs> when you think about Jesus, how many years did he live before he got anyone's attention? 30 years, just live growing up in a family, going to work, working with his dad, being a carpenter. He was poor, he was born into a poor family. His parents, when they took Jesus to the temple, they didn't bring the most expensive offering, they brought pigeons. That's the sacrifice you would give when you had nothing, just catch a bird. So you start, stop and think about this, what does it mean for you and I as Christians? This is God's surprising wisdom that we think is foolishness. I mean, one, if you're a Christian, you should expect to be treated the same way, <laughs> to be seen as foolish. If you value what God values, we're going to be seen at best as insignificant. Because what God values are those that the world considers insignificant to shame the wise, to quote Paul. I mean, think about it. the world says, You need to have a phenomenal romance to have a meaningful life. And God comes along and says, you can be single or married, it's okay. The world says you have to have a lot of money to be happy. Jesus couldn't even afford to pay his own taxes. He sent his friends, so he would ask his friends for coins. The world values beauty and age. We're going to watch the Super Bowl in HD, and even those who are older have been caked in makeup so they look as good as possible because on HD you can see every, <laughs> every flaw. But Jesus, he wasn't good looking. Isaiah tells us that if you looked at him, he had no former majesty that we would even be attracted to him. You would walk right on by because he was just a normal, funny looking guy. This is important because as a pastor, I can say a lot of our misery comes from um, misplaced expectations. Is that we long for this and reality is this. We long for significance and the reality is insignificant. And then we get mad. We get anxious. Because you know, when I expect my life to be a five star hotel, and then I end up with the bed bugs and the roaches and the uninvited guests into my room, and you get mad. <laughs> But if your expectations are shaped to reality then I'm going into a cheap motel because I'm cheap, <laughs> and then you find these guests, or you don't find the guests, and it's great, you're, you're thrilled. I mean, expectations really do shape the way you experience life. It's, a, it's really powerful. And you look at Bethlehem, God's saying, you need to change what you expect if you're going to work with me because I value the insignificant. God sent Jesus into this world to shame the wise, and to reveal the foolishness of this world. That God works through what the world considers foolish, me and you, ordinary people changed by the gospel. And so here, here's what I want to encourage you, that as God blessed Bethlehem with, with the presence that to be, with the, be forever remembered as the birthplace of God's Messiah, think about the honor that God is saying that you are now my home my dwelling place. Because in the gospel, that's what happens. In his wisdom, he makes us his home, God with us, so that we could be recipients of his foolishness, Christ dying for us. And the way he did that was through something the world thought was horrible, through weakness and through death. That Jesus would die a mutilated, ugly, mutilated beyond recognition, rejected a criminal, somebody everybody thought was a waste. And he did that so that we would have his presence, so we would be found in him, so that we know, even though the world considers us foolish for being here on a Sunday morning, we know it's God's wisdom working for our benefit. Even as he notices the least of these, us. And second, we're seeing here that, that we need specific wisdom because how do you find this king? How do you, how do you get to Bethlehem? How did the magi get there? And I know you all want to say the star, but that's that's not really how they got there. They went to the wrong place. They got close, but they didn't actually get to where Jesus was until they had the scriptures. I mean they made the same mistake we would. We go to the capital, you go to the place of power and influence. But God wanted them to go to Bethlehem, and the only way they got there was through God's specific written wisdom. And this is what Matthew is repeatedly going to want you to consider as we look at this book, that God's word is where you find God's wisdom, and that the wisdom of this world, pictured by astrology, it's vague at best. It's fuzzy. It's not going to give you a specific place to go to find God. Think about the star and what a star does. It shines. A star tells us a lot about God and his world. You can think about what scientists do. They tell us that a star is a luminous sphere of plasma held together by its own gravity. Our closest star is the sun. And it's amazing that we even have life at all as the earth is perfectly positioned to be close enough to the sun so that we could live and breathe and have relationships and be here. And so even just looking at that one idea, you can get the idea that there is a God. That something out there must have created this. There must be some cause, because everything we see has a cause. It's one of the, the, the arguments. It's not rock solid, but it's one of the hints in the universe. That there is a God who made something, who's, who's got wisdom to know how all these things should work. That he's powerful, he's creative, he's in love with beauty, as you see the way the world is made. But a star cannot tell you where to find God. It can't be your guide. It's only going to give you educated guesses. All right. That's what Romans 1 tells us. that the, the, the world, creation in general, tells us there's a God. And you can look around at the world and say there's something wrong with people as well. But we aren't told what to do about it just by looking at a star. I mean, our only options are guessing. All right. Think about our reason. I mean, these guys are the intellectuals, the magi. These are the ones who spent all their time studying and reading and in the books, in the ivory tower, so to speak. And with all their smarts, they couldn't think their way to God. They got close, but not without help from the scriptures. And I know our non-Christian friends, maybe this is you, we believe that I think That what I believe has to be backed up by what I think. And that I can think my way into what I believe. And if I can't think my way to have rock solid proof, then it must not be worth worshipping. And that's just not how the world works. Romans is saying you can't do that. Even the magi, they're picturing and showing us that you can't do that. Because you can use your reason to argue that there is a God, but it will not tell you this God has a name, a person who broke into time and space. Uh, you, can, you can argue for rules without a, bel- a belief in God. You can use your conscience and say, we think these are the ways to live in peace with one another. But you can't, you can't get to know God through, through your conscience. You can, you can say maybe there's one out there who's perfect. If, if there is an expectation that, that I should be perfect, maybe there's an even bigger perfection out there. But you don't get a name until you come to the Scriptures. And I can prove it to you. You can't reason; we can't even use our reason to prove that right now you're not sitting in another room, plugged into a machine, just dreaming. I know that's the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> you go by faith that you are you, because you think. But see, we we aren't just thinking creatures. And one of the things that, that Matthew, the historian, wants you to see that God, in His wisdom, has shown you where to find. God in his son, Jesus, his king. And that gives you a specific place to look. It's see, as you, it's, In some ways, this is the, the big push of the passage is saying, I want you to go and find God's king, and you find him at Jesus. I want you to be like the magi, to be willing to travel as far as possible to give up your talent, your time, your money, your wealth, and fall down on your feet and worship and give everything to him because this is a king that's worthy of worship for all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. But the way to do that is to come to him through his word. And so it makes you wonder, what kind of king is this? That's what Matthew's going to show us. What kind of king is this that demands and actually inspires the devotions of all kinds of different people? And we need a fresh view because the people who had the scriptures in our passage, (laughs) the scribes, the chief priests, the people in Jerusalem, even Herod himself, nobody got off their their backside to go check it out. The ones who, who took the most amount of effort were the magi, the foreigners. And so it's trying to show you that God's wisdom is actually more inclusive than even we can imagine. God's wisdom, which looks like foolishness and narrow, it's actually bigger and more expansive than you would think. I'm going to end with this. All right, because the world looks at us, the church, and the scriptures, and say, you're so narrow. You have to come to Jesus, this one king. This is where you find God's wisdom. This is where you find God's love. He is the, the way, the truth, and, and the life but if you don't come to Jesus, you're actually going to be more narrow than Jesus himself. And I can prove it to you just by who wrote the book. Think about Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, you read this in Matthew 9, it's who he was. He was a tax collector. He was, he was a Jew who worked for the foreign Gentile government. And the way he got the job was through, through promising to, st- to take money and give an x amount of money to the roman government every year and he promised to give the most out of all the other competitors for the job but then he had roman muscles he had soldiers that he could follow into into your home to take your money that you would use to feed your kids and be, and rome didn't care if matthew used the muscle to take a little bit extra off the top for himself and so matthew got wealth he became rich and comfortable but off the backs of the poor He was a despicable guy, he was a thief, he was a traitor. The Romans associated tax collectors with brothel keepers. Um, They were just the prime example of all kinds of immorality. And this is the guy that Jesus calls to himself and says, follow me, and allows and motivates and inspires to be one of the authors of scripture. So if you think about it, if the wisdom of the world says religion are for those who are trying really, really hard to be good. Matthew wouldn't be let in. He'd be out just by virtue of being a terrible person. If you apply that wisdom, that means everybody in prison, right, they're out. The law has branded them condemned. Everybody in, in the hood who's, right, who's, who's breaking the law, all those lawbreakers out there that we know are, are lower than us, they're out. God's wisdom wouldn't include them. Right? Or, or even if, how do you say who's good and who's bad these days? Which makes the wisdom question even more confusing. Morality has changed rapidly in the last 10 to 15 years, which means the, the door is going to be closing and opening. How do you even figure out who gets in? Or if Jesus was only for the wealthy, people like the Magi, uh, the powerful, the kings, then all the poor would be out, all the, the slums. Nobody would ever be invited in. Small towns would be left off God's list. If Jesus was only for the poor, we would never even have motivation to, pay for, to pray for our leaders. You know, we would rise up as the 99 to attack the 1%. If Jesus was only for the smart, the intellectuals, the, philosoph- the, the philosophers, right? I'm out. I just read a lot. and I'm not that, I'm not that smart. But all the blue-collar guys, they're gone. See, this is the foolishness of God's wisdom. He says, everyone who comes to this king has a warm welcome with God because he, through foolishness, through weakness, through dying, through... Bearing all of our sin on our behalf, he he welcomes us in. The gospel actually gives hope for everyone, and it's a wider door than I would argue that the world even even argues. So we're called to come and seek God's specific wisdom to see His surprising foolishness in welcoming people like us, and see that there are people out there not like us that God is calling, even like the Magi, the foreigners. All right, so this is how Matthew ends. He's writing to people like us, to the church. Matthew is a missions textbook. So the famous passage at the end is, Go therefore to all nations making disciples if I have taught you. And he starts out with a picture. Right, Jesus is already doing your work for you. <laughs> He's drawing the nations in. Here's a group of people that you would never expect to worship Jesus, to give their all. all right, be jealous. Be motivated, be inspired to, to, to seek after this king. And if you're not sure what they see, it's a, it's a call to read this book and say, let me see more about God's wisdom. Who is this Jesus? Why does he inspire people from all walks of life? Rich, poor, liberal, conservative, all, every category will be in heaven. Right. Come. How do you respond to this king? To God's wisdom and his foolishness. Um, and the answer is, we're, we're called to give him worship. We're called to humble ourselves and say, your foolishness is me Amen. so that I might boast in your wisdom, uh, your obedience for me, your righteousness, your sanctification, your gift of salvation. The gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you Call all people to yourself. And I pray for, as we get prepared to come to the table, that we would hear your gracious invitation, and that you look at the insignificant, and so they were, they were worth, worth your everything, coming from heaven to earth, giving us your very best, even your son, to bleed on our behalf, so that you might be with us, and we might be with you and be your witnesses. And so I pray you will build up our faith as we experience your grace in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.